Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, we're thrilled today to be joined by Sally Courtard, designer and best-selling author. Sally also writes a great column for Country Living, Good Life in the Country, about her small holding deep in the North Yorkshire countryside. After studying archaeology and anthropology at Oxford University, Sally has spent the last 20 years designing, making and writing about homes, craft and outdoor spaces. She sees no boundary between the rules that govern good interior design and those which are needed to craft a spectacular studio or glorious garden. Sally, uh, many thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm glad you can. You're very welcome. It's lovely to speak to you. I think I could talk to you uh, for hours about the trials and tribulations of the good life um, in the, from the Country Living magazine. Sounds absolutely <laughs> awesome uh, and mental as well. Um, but uh, <laughs> but this, the podcast is about biophilia, so I'll, I'll try and hook it on that <laughs> as much as I can. Obviously, you're keen to make good design accessible as possible, and you've written over 20 books about restoring houses and designing interiors and outdoor living. Um, I, I, mean, I love your little book of building fires. And so if anyone's listening, oh, brilliant. <laughs> it's really cool. How to, how to build a shed, uh, another one, yeah. and a hedgehog handbook. Um, personally, because obviously I'm a creative, your studio, um, creative spaces for creative people is great. And obviously pure living, how to detox your home from BBC books. Obviously there's, there's many, many more. You've um, got half my list there. That was fantastic. <laughs> you that's I'm, buying my books. <laughs> I absolutely love them. Um, a beautifully produced and, and you write so, so well. I'd like to obviously focus on your book, uh, Biophilia. Mm um that we can sort of riff off and um and i really want to find out more about what biophilia means to you and how you think it makes a difference in people's lives just for the people listening as well biophilia this book if you get a copy of it it's absolutely beautiful it was on forbes magazine's five isolation must reads so um if forbes say it then you've got to go and get yourself a copy so um <laughs> so Sally, could you um start by telling us a little bit about yourself obviously you live in the country and have a small holding I do, I do, and I'm not entirely sure how I've ended up here. Life's a kind of funny mixture of sort of journeys and crossroads and false turns and all kinds of things. So yeah, I've ended up in the middle of the North Yorkshire countryside on a small holding with my husband and three children and tons of animals and just managed to somehow carve out a life for myself that involves writing books which is a passion and being surrounded by nature and looking after animals and just generally sort of feeling in control of my life and 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 doing things that kind of um i really enjoy so for me that's sort of i feel like i've kind of hit the jackpot really um so yeah i'm i'm so blessed to live in the countryside Oh, sounds absolutely lovely. Obviously, you just as a kind of an aside, you read archaeology and anthropology at Oxford. Um, it might seem a far cry. I actually read classics at UCL, so my PhD was in um, Greek and Latin. Oh, yeah. We could bore each other with dry academic, <laughs> academic text. <laughs> Wouldn't we do I know, but you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think there's a massive gap between, in a funny way, lots of kind of academic subjects and biophilia or um, sort of interest in nature and things. I mean, certainly our canals. Um, there's a big core of information in that in those subjects, which are about how societies organise themselves, how they relate to nature how they build their homes and relate to their environments and stuff like that. So 
pretty much, although, they, although my sort of working life seems to have sort of taken quite a few little kind of random turns here and there, there is a kind of core principle that, that runs through them, which is to do with sort of how, uh, looking at how people relate to their environment, whether that's their cultural environment or their natural environment or their family environment, all those kind of things. I just find it, I, I find people fascinating and I find historically it's, it's fascinating how people have kind of solved the same, same problems kind of, you know, over the centuries. So, so there's, yeah, there's, it, there, there are links kind of pretty much with all the books I do to that. Yeah, yeah, totally. I totally get that. I mean, obviously you're, you really, you clearly love and, and are passionate about our natural world and all the creatures and the plants that we share a planet with. I mean, what, what actually, um, kick, what kickstarted that in you? I mean, what immersed you? Were you, were you immersed in nature from a young age or? I, I was really lucky in that I had a really free childhood. So I was born and brought up on the edge of Leeds um, by two lovely liberal parents who were teachers who, and, and we lived kind of on the edge of the countryside, really. We, we were in a village that had, had become almost a suburb of, of Leeds. And, but we were right next to some really beautiful countryside. And so my childhoods were, were kind of wonderfully feral. Um, and, I, and I spent most of my time with my older brother exploring. And I mean, it sounds such a cliche these days, but, you know, lighting campfires, which is something I talk about in my little book of building fires and... Um, building dens and climbing trees and, and all that kind of thing and exploring my natural environment on my terms which is um, which was really brilliant and I've tried to kind of recreate that as much as possible for my kids mm. but it, it is a different it is a different climate that we live in and, and, and you know and we sort of we're I think we're probably slightly more cautious as parents in this day and age mm. about letting our children have such kind of freedom mm. so maybe that's where the kind of love of nature came in um, my mum's, my mum especially was always really passionate about wildflowers and and gardening and, and my dad's really into to craft and woodwork and craftsmanship and things so you know there's sort of those kind of different angles um, feeding into it but I think it was just it must have just been that the, the ability to be allowed to kind of be a child in nature um, that sort of started it all off really um, and then, and then, you know, as, as often happens, you know, when you, when you become a teenager and nothing's cool to do with nature anymore. So, you know, you go off and you want to live in the city. And, and I did that um, and quite enjoyed it, but, but eventually realized that kind of country living and, and, and that kind of thing were, were where my heart was really. So came back to the countryside. Yeah, that sounds really great. As you say, being a child in nature, I think, um, I think if we could have, you know, four children or, you know, all of us could have that um, early life, in you know surrounded by nature and as you say on your terms you know being able to create dens mm. and just have that freedom as you say it's a different time now but um yeah it's, it's so important it, isn't yeah. it it is and funny enough it's, i touch on it only briefly in the book really but uh, but the relationship between biophilia and children i find um really profound yeah. and and i mean i don't go into to, to enormous sort of scientific detail in the book but but one of the things that keeps coming up time and time again from studies where about the sort of health and well-being benefits of nature is just how any benefits that we do receive are, are magnified in children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, and also the converse of that is that if children are deprived of natural surroundings, you know, it has such a kind of profound effect on their, on their well-being. So one study, for instance, um, looked at the nature of play 
in children and how when children play in nature they play in a fundamentally different way than they do say with plastic toys or in a classroom environment mm -hmm. and that children in nature the play tends to be um they take more risks and they're they're sort of more physically confident um and also the games that they play aren't as gendered um as when they're in the classroom or when they're you know playing with pink toys or blue toys or that kind of thing mm -hmm. And, and, and that sort of, I, I found that really moving that, that, that children, if allowed to kind of play in a natural environment, aren't necessarily constrained by all the things that um, cultural ties and, you know, TV and classroom environments tend to push on them. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, absolutely. As you say, it's that non-gender specific um, it's mm. given that freedom. It, they do play differently. I mean, even when mm -hmm. you, know, so you were saying about when you were a kid. I mean, I remember when I was playing and you know, in my in my mates and yeah, it just it just gives you, um, a, a, yeah, a sense of freedom actually as a child. Okay. Anything, yeah, you can do anything. It's also a sense of control that you can be like you know the king of the jungle if you want, and you know, um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and that, you know, there's I mean, there's been a lot of work recently on and um, intro, introverts and about how. You know, a lot of a lot of life isn't really set up for people who are kind of naturally introverted. Yeah. Whereas, and, and like the kind of peace and quiet, and and like their own time, and they don't necessarily need to feel surrounded by hundreds of people all the time. Mm -hmm. And 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 for me, kind of nature and being around nature and stuff really um, taps into that because I feel like that. I'm I'm quite a chatty person, but I'm also quite an introverted person. I really like my own time, and I like not to be surrounded constantly by people and noise and that kind of thing. And so, so you know, the natural world um, really supports you know both kind of personality types, sort of introverts and extroverts, which is maybe something that kind of urban life doesn't necessarily do so well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm exactly the same as you. I'm the same. I'm chatty. Life and soul of the party, but then I do like my own space and I like to be quiet. Mm. And I like to be away from it. I had a an interview with um, Andrea Harmon, who's the innov head of innovation for Ecofun. You know, the acoustic panel company. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, she's she's a real. I mean, she, you know, from a really scientific point of view, she was, and, and I thought this was awesome. She mentioned mm -hmm. that sound sound doesn't have, you know, in nature, sound doesn't have walls. So mm -hmm. when we're outside, the sound kind of just goes on, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's kind of its mm -hmm. open space. But when you're inside, um, you've got four walls, so everything reverberates back on you. So actually, it has a de de you know, it's detrimental effect on our minds and on our, you know, on the psychology of us. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'm just getting exactly what you say about being outside in nature has that is it's a completely unique effect on us. So um. it's, it's interesting actually making the link with, between acoustics because one of the bits in the book I talk about is nature soundtrack and the fact that um, for so many people um, that kind of natural acoustic environment is gone is has been removed by either traffic noise or you know the sound of kind of media and radio and TV blaring all the time and. And, and I find it so fascinating that one of the massive trends at the moment is that people are using nature apps and, and nature sound apps to relax. Yeah. And so, you know, to, to feel, I mean, my daughter listens to the sound of um, rain on her, uh, on her iPad at nighttime just to kind of feel relaxed. <laughs> I mean, even though we're in the middle of the countryside and it's raining most of the time, she still listens to it on the iPad. But, um, you know, it's that kind of, um that that, that that sort of acoustic ecology that 
that we're, we're a lot of people are sort of really missing. And, and I find certain natural sounds so unbelievably relaxing. And, um, you know, and, and, and like bird song, especially. I mean, this year in lockdown, oh. I've, I've really noticed the bird song in a way that I didn't, I haven't done previously. Um, because obviously the, the road near us is, has gone quiet and, you know, there wasn't so much air traffic and, and just, I think a lot of people suddenly kind of heard noises, natural noises that they hadn't heard for a long time, um, which is interesting. I do wonder, like, and this is just a slight random aside, I do wonder how, what the difference is going to be when electric cars finally become the norm, because they're so quiet. I mean, I, I borrowed an electric car for a month to do a, to do a kind of road trial on it for country living. And I was stunned by how quiet it was. And it does make me wonder whether, you know, when our roads are quieter, um, you know, the safety sort of aspect aside of, of, of kind of whether people are actually gonna hear traffic coming towards them. But, you know, the, the, the kind of, I don't think we're gonna miss all that sort of um, diesel and petrol kind of sounds and the sounds of the kind of combustion engine and, and, and things that I'm hoping that will make a difference. Yeah. I totally agree. It'd be really nice. I kind of, yeah, I just bring on the electric car. I'm just I'm looking yeah. forward to that mini, the mini electric car. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. You know. Just have to save up a bit. For... <laughs> I'm going to have to sell a few more prints, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, what is it about the natural world that you love so much? I mean, what is it that really sings to you, really? What, what, what is it that you really love? Um, well, I'm quite an aesthetic person. Uh, well, I'm a very aesthetic person. So, and, and so for me, kind of nature's aesthetic, I find really pleasing. I love the colours of, I mean, uh, you know, without sounding trite, I love the colours of nature, I love the patterns of nature. Mm -hmm. I, love, I, I love the kind of hues and the tones and the balance of, of, of sort of the things that I'm looking, at, I'm looking at. They always just always seem to kind of work. And I love the fact that nature's not a static thing either so that so that you know um the seasons mean that every time i look out of my window you know no two days are alike and and that's i, I find that so exciting and so kind of mesmerizing yeah but also i mean i, I the, you know there are so many things about i like about nature you know beyond its kind of awesome power and 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 you know i i i don't want to be sentiment over sentimental about nature because nature can be can be brutal but mm. i love the fact that it's so it, you know it works it's 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 a balance you know it has its own innate balance yeah um and it's an own innate rhythms and, and it's like a it's an amazing system that works and 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 so that kind of appeals to the sort of engineering side of my my brain yeah. and and you know sort of moving forward I, I can i can imagine that so many of the things that we struggle with at the moment to do with you know medical breakthroughs and all that kind of stuff you know the answers are already out there you know nature will provide them but we just have to stop kind of we still have to to, to to being so cavalier with our with our approach to our natural environment i find that really depressing um yeah. and upsetting yeah. so but, but 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 overall it just it's just a, it's just a beautiful system that works and has its own checks and balances um so you know that that really sort of ticks my ocd as <laughs> 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 uh, as well you sort of mentioned you guys have touched a little bit about the sort of environmental kind of side things as well i mean one of the things that i'm passionate about obviously is is the environment and mm -hmm. there's a kind of i suppose there's a secret thing inside me that thinks well if more people bring biophilic design into their life and into their home and into mm -hmm. their workplace mm -hmm. you know they're going to respect nature they're going to sort of appreciate it in a different way so mm -hmm. they're not going to stop chopping the trees you know they're going to stop chopping the trees down and polluting the atmosphere 
I kind of um... I, I couldn't agree I couldn't agree more and I think there's something I'm really hoping that um, one of the things that I've uh, uh, struck me is the fact that people haven't been a bit when people go on holiday Mm. away from their whether it's taking a weekend break or, t or you know from their sort of everyday lives they at the moment have to remove themselves physically quite a long way from where they live to actually go and, and so I find it, it it's interesting that people choose to go to the beach or to the forest or they go abroad or whatever to find the thing that, it, that they're looking for the kind of beauty that they're looking for yeah. and that and that in lockdown because we because that's been stopped and so we can't take planes and we can't go on you know journeys and all that kind of stuff yeah. it then makes you look really inwards about your own living environment and your own community and street and and village or town or whatever and i'm really hoping that that makes um people focus a bit more on their direct communities and their direct living experiences rather than feeling that and you know I, I can't possibly imagine what it must be like to, well, I can imagine actually what it must be like to live in, you know, some kind of awful situation where, you know, you're, you're in a, you're in a high rise and, and, and it's, you know, there's not, there's no greenery around and that kind of thing. So, you know, I don't want to be sort of say, or, you know, I don't want to trite about it and say, oh, you know, we should all be, you know, planting trees where we live and things, but, but in general, having a kind of awareness of your local environment and, and knowing how to make positive changes to it, whether that's, in, through planting or whether it's on a kind of societal level where you you know you demand things of politicians where you say well actually you know I want a better community and I want better streets and I want yeah. you know living spaces as in green living spaces yeah. you know they're all they're all things that kind of feed into this this idea that you know if we maybe looked a bit closer and stopped trying to escape from where we lived and you know maybe we might improve things yeah I think um, I think that's right. It kind of sort of brings us on to kind of the next question, really. Um, obviously, in this in this lovely book, um, again, listeners go buy it. Um, it's biophilia. Um, you have this sort of subheading is you, nature, and home. It's as a handbook mm -hmm. bringing the natural world into your life. Um, I mean, I think it should be the handbook that everyone has in their house, in their workplace, um, and it's like the place to go to kind of get inspiration about bringing nature inside. Um, and you just mentioned, I'm just going to jump around a little bit, but you mentioned community just now and in their yeah. sort of communal spaces. I mean, how can people bring biophilia into, into, into those sort of like community activities or community spaces or communal spaces that would actually make a difference? Well, do you know, I... Uh... I think it's it's a really interesting time to live in cities because um, on, on one hand, um, you know, they are massively polluted places with lots of kind of social challenges. But yet at the same time, I I, never has there been such a kind of um, enthusiastic and engaged population who are interested in in bringing nature into urban environments. And whether that's, I mean, I, I, I do quite a lot with work with, um, urban beekeepers or there's, a, there's some fantastic organizations that focus solely on planting trees mm. in cities and, and that's not just in this country that's in America and, and Europe as well um, or, or you know community gardens or urban farms or, or all these kind of things where you know communal spaces are being treasured and looked after by their own community um, I think those are kind of really powerful, powerful projects because they're they're not just about nature; they're about community yeah. and and people kind of looking out for each other and, and, and things. Because I don't think you can kind of view 
looking after nature without looking at how communities look after each other either. So for me, it's kind of political with a small peer. You know, I, yeah. I think there's a big link between kind of policy and, 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 and people's sort of living environments and how they relate to each other and, and stuff. But, you know, I mean, there are, there are big glamorous projects as well. You know, you know, there are lots of kind of, especially in the Far East where um, architects are making living buildings, you know, where they have, you know, high rises with these most amazing kind of um, living balconies or living walls or living roofs and, and, and making, you know, the cities of the future will look hopefully quite different. Yeah. Um, but but, but at the moment now, there are lots of community schemes where people can get involved um, on a volunteer basis, certainly. Yeah, no, exactly. In terms of like homes and workplaces, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated how, you know, obviously people are trying to go back to work and they're, they're scared, you know what I mean? They're kind of, it's almost yeah. like fear. They're not sure mm -hmm. what it's going to be mm -hmm. like. They're, they're worried about space and stuff. I've seen some really interesting kind of almost interventions of how sort of nature planting can be used to, to break up the space to sort of help clean mm -hmm. the air and all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. It, obviously it's, it's a huge kind of <laughs> question really and but but I mean maybe just even just sort of top line. How do you see biophilic design helping workplaces and is it the same for our homes? Is it kind of the same sort of principle? Well the, the same the same kind of principles underlie underlie it all and, and, and very simply they're sim they're they're about putting yourself in direct contact with nature. And if you can't do that, then putting yourself in direct contact with 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 nature's patterns and images and and rhythms and that kind of thing. And I, and I go into kind of that in great great detail in the book. Um, but in in terms of the kind of workspace question, uh, I'm really hoping that that the biophilic approach to architecture and interior design becomes so commonplace and because it's so important for human health and productivity um, that it becomes as as absolutely normalized as health and safety kind of legislation in the workplace or you know working time initiatives and that kind of thing so that and and the the, the great persuading argument for for companies has to be that employees in working environments who are surrounded by natural motifs or plants or have decent views out the window or have fresh air you know washing through the building or all these kind of things that are the kind of core biophilic elements yeah. actually are massively more productive they're, they're happier they're more productive they're more creative they take less sick days you know it's a tick 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 for if i was an employer of a big company this is really kind of like profound information yeah i don't think it requires huge kind of money throwing at it necessarily i mean some you know some office blocks are, are awful and they're, ne they're never going to be good places for people to work mm -hmm. and, and and you know that's kind of the result of sort of you know a lot of post-war you know sort of cheap building projects and things um but but i think a lot of workplaces you know with some quite sort of nuanced changes could make things so much more pleasant for for the people for the people who work there um so for me it's a kind of you know 
I hate kind of surface treatments of, th of things and or, or like, you know, sort of superficial approaches to things. And so, and so to say, oh, well, you know, just bring, just bring pot plants into your office and everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I think it's more profound than that. I think it's, you know, allowing people, you know, access to outside space for their lunch hours. I think it's about, you know, making sure that people are breathing really clean air and that, that they've got plenty of access to natural light. You know, all the things that make people happier and 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 and, and better um, i think people should be sort of think you know employers should be thinking about i mean how did you find out about biophilia or the sort of like the term biophilia in the first place it must have crept in at some time i mean i, I because i write so many I, I write so many books it's a kind of almost it's a compulsion um <laughs> that uh and a lot about and, and i write a lot about nature and um, countryside living and all that kind of thing and but I also write about the built environment yeah. um, I must have kind of come across a term maybe 10 but no one was really kind of talking about it I mean there was it's been a, it's been absolutely the forefront of architecture and architectural thinking for a long time and there are some really brilliant companies mm -hmm. doing really exciting architecture but I always feel like there's a big remove between uh, a big distance between um that kind of architecture and, and most people's like daily experiences yeah. so you know you can have these amazing schemes so um i don't know if you've been to king's cross recently but you know all the all the back of king's cross station in london has been has been redeveloped and and they've and and they've really thought about biophilia in that development and even though it's, it's a hugely urban environment and it's never going to feel like a forest or but they've done some really playful things with you know water fountains and some lovely planting and there's those sort of lovely breezes that are you know that move through the spaces and all that kind of some really nice views and vistas and things and i find that that, that I, I find that really interesting that that's kind of people are doing that here and now but there's a big difference between that and and kind of you know if you're living in you know a normal house and you know in a norm in a, in, and you've got a sort of normal budget and you can't kind of completely radically change an environment mm -hmm. so so yeah so by so getting back to your question about biophilia which is that i've sort of i've known about it for quite a long time but i felt quite frustrated because i couldn't really work out how you applied it um to your own life and also I like to know about what the actual science is behind it, you know, the neuroscience or the psychology or yeah. or that kind of stuff to see, because then it's more robust than when people try and knock, knock you down and say, well, biophilia is rubbish. It's all kind of airy fairy green nonsense. And you want to say, well, actually, no, yeah. you know, hospitals and doctors and surgeons and child psychologists say this, this, and this, and this, and this, yeah. and you know, they have no agenda. So, um, that's kind of partly the, the reason behind the book as well yeah and no, i think i think it's great and it's kind of you you know the, the, the beauty of this book i mean there's there's some great research and links at the back um of the book as well different references and that so again read listeners <laughs> um, grab yourself a copy because there's some really interesting uh, references in the back of the book that you can uh, kind of follow up i mean just just sort of again top line i mean what do you think are the main benefits of biophonic design i mean i mean it's huge <laughs> huge question yeah. Well, on a, on, a, on a really superficial level, uh, so uh, for me, they're sort of threefold. So on a really superficial basis, homes that incorporate natural elements or, or workspaces that incorporate natural elements are really just lovely spaces. You know, you, go into, you can go into a house that's full of natural light, breezes, potted plants, natural materials, you know, um, you haven't got acres of 
technology around you or you haven't got this sort of awful lighting or you know all these kind of things and instantly you, you kind of feel at home so so on a and uh, on a really sort of superficial level you know biophilic buildings are really nice spaces to be in if yeah. you're interested in aesthetics <laughs> then there's a kind of ecological um, benefit which is that tends to be that biophilic design tends to be really also ecologically friendly mm -hmm. because it would be I mean it would be awful if, if if loads of kind of bits of biophilic design actually destroyed the environment I mean you know what a cruel irony that would be so a lot of biophilic design is very sensitive about its use of you know wood and natural materials and it's very light in its approach of using using materials. Um, and so there's a lot of crossover with green design mm -hmm. and making spaces um, healthy for the environment and, and, and not kind of ruin the environment at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I suppose um, at its most kind of profound level, biophilia is important and its main benefits are for us mm -hmm. as people. Um, I mean, the science is overwhelming that if you design a space, whether it's homework or you know wider communities, that um, that that sort of nurture nurture nature and people's relationship with it, then the the health benefits and the well-being benefits for people are 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 multitude. You know, the, it, it it lowers sort of negative um, problems such as stress and heart related issues and problems related to the nervous system and you know we have a lot of problems with sleep in this country mm -hmm. and you know if you start tackling things like air quality you know then that has a knock-on effect on things like asthma and the spiritual problems and stuff and so so biophilic design reduces the kind of negative problems that a lot of people have associated with buildings um, and yet at the same time it also improves lots of good things so you know um you can improve creativity and productivity and feelings of of contentment and connectedness with your outdoor space and all these things. so so it's it's a really kind of it, the the benefits are you know are, are far reaching and and wide and all interconnected and yeah. um, so for me it's a sort of really persuasive um idea yeah do you have a favorite sort of biophilic design solution <laughs> and is it different from like homes to workplaces oh that's, <laughs> that's a good question um do you know um i don't really have a favorite because I, because for me my sort of my bugbears about different buildings are often different when i go in you know sometimes you know the the lighting's wrong and sometimes the heating's wrong and sometimes you feel you know the colors are wrong and all that kind of stuff um there's this there's a cool idea and, and i know you and i know you picked up on it as well called anesthesia which yeah. is something that we sort of um don't really think about very much but it's it's the idea that humans get pleasure from from certain stimulus depending on what state they're in at that point in time so that's a bit of a complicated way of saying so for instance um <laughs> if you're really cold you really enjoy the feeling of intense heat whereas if you're just a normal temperature you don't you don't enjoy that same temp the same intense heat in the same way or um if you're really hot and you have a glass of ice cold water 
it's much more enjoyable than if you were just a kind of normal temperature and drank a, cold, um, a glass of cold water. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that we, as humans, enjoy these kind of extremes of temperature or sensory experiences based on how, how, where we are at that current point in time. And so a quite a complicated scientific idea can be translated into homes. For instance, things like, you know, my kids love leaning their backs on the arger in the kitchen, even though it's actually too hot. <laughs> but they come into school, they're freezing, and they love that sensation. Yeah. Or it's the same idea that when you're really, really hot, you love jumping into a swimming pool or paddling in a stream or all those kind of things. Yeah. And so I'm kind of interested to know about kind of how people are trying to incorporate that idea into buildings or the idea that you know breezes are really important and not having a building that's one temperature all the time Mm -hmm. which is what most kind of heating systems aim for which is that we have just like a static experience of heat throughout the day and the night Mm -hmm. whereas actually humans need to be one temperature during the day and then a much cooler temperature during the night Mm -hmm. and that we enjoy these kind of this dynamic relationship with our senses and with the environment sorry i'm i'm waffling <laughs> I realize i'm waffling on it for ages about such a strange scientific ideas but i love that because i think um you know for so long we've we've been led to believe that our homes should be static places where the lighting is the same and the heat is the same and the views are the same and all that kind of thing mm. and actually that's not nature and that's not what we're what's not we what we've evolved to respond to Mm-hmm. And so making our homes a bit more responsive to sort of, you know, changes, uh, I think would be, is a really interesting idea to explore. Yeah. Then when I, when I read that in your book, this anesthesia, I thought, what's this? This is really cool. And like mm-hmm. you with the whole academic brain is like, I want to know more about it. So I thought I'll call you first. <laughs> I'm not sure I've explained it brilliantly, but I, you know, the, the only way I can think about it is literally this sort of warming your bottom on a, on a, on a, on a campfire kind of analogy. <laughs> which is it's just that lovely sort of you know, like delicious sensation of the front of me is really cold and the back of me is really warm kind of thing and I love that I sort of love that idea and it's yeah. true um, above anything else yeah no I, I think that's absolutely brilliant um as I said you know when I we spoke just before I mean when I read through your book it was like I was speaking you know like like you were speaking to me or kind of I was speaking to myself I mean all the things you describe um you know resonate really deeply with me um you know everything from like the nature soundtrack to natural light being near water fresh air moonlight um I mean you've mentioned as well views of nature I mean obviously that's based on on sort of science as well I mean I, I set up my gentle wellness after both my mother and father were in hospital and I kind of it was a bit of sanity for me it's like oh I, I think you know this sort of whole I've heard about biophilia so I put in prints for my mother and, and it did and I actually saw for myself that it reduced blood pressure it just helped to get better quicker it helped to focus it kind of not you know reduced sort of a, a kind of like delirium almost um but um, yes, that's so lovely I, when, when you when you when you mentioned about that about about when your parents are poorly and the fact that you you know your your approach to helping them feel better was to was to to, to kind of bring in images of nature and things i just thought that's such a kind of wonderfully intuitive approach to things and such a kind and caring thing to do mm-hmm. and it's also absolutely what the science is saying we should be doing 
And so, you know, when you, when you read studies about um, hospital garden design and the relationship between views of nature and how well patients recover from operations and things, mm. you know, it's staggering the actual benefits. I can't believe all hospitals, I mean, you know, presumably it's a, it's a, it's a finances thing, but it should be absolutely a fundamental part of, of building design. Yeah, I totally hospitals. agree. I totally yeah. agree. I mean, they could do it with, you know, I mean, you know, instead of buying like horrible plastic stuff or whatever, you know, they can buy things that, that are still self-cleaning and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I interviewed uh, Dame Laura Lee, um, you know, from of the cat, you know, she's CEO of the Cancer Care, Maggie's Cancer Care Centres. Right. She was saying that people with cancer, you know, they don't like that their sort of their their sort of senses are sort of hyper um hypersensitive um for yeah. the word and so yeah. when they touch metal handles it kind of affects them so a lot of their stuff is like sort of wooden handles or natural stuff so it just makes everything so much better i mean when, yeah. they're, when they're doing hospital i mean i just wish everybody like you say i wish they were all that was one of the reasons as well why i set the company up is that i kind of was out this sort of crazy altruistic thing that i want every nhs to be full of biophilia i want every nhs to have like at least views of nature um, you know, I know they can't cut holes in the walls, and if they did, it'd probably be the views of the bins or <laughs> or the car park or something. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I know. And you know, and, and the last thing I want to do is 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 criticise the NHS because they do an absolutely no, unbelievable absolutely. job yeah, yeah. With, with minimal resources. And so and so for me, it's a kind of uh, it's a plea to the it's a, a plea to the sort of um, authority. You know, the wider, the bigger, the bigger authorities to say you know can, can this be part of budgeting when you know you know you're thinking about hospital design could the, yeah. this this is something to be born about. but you know we've known about this for eight we've known about this for ages and i write about this in the book that yeah. florence nightingale when she was helping the, the soldiers in the crimean war you know she wrote about the effect of bringing flower fresh flowers into the wards and that and, and, the, and that, it, that it helped prove improve the morale and and in in certain cases the healing rates of the of patients and you think it's long enough ago we should be doing something about this a long time ago yeah, i agree i've just actually got that quote open here it says it's what florence nightingale wrote it said i shall never forget the rapture of fever patients over a bunch of bright colored flowers people say the effect is only on the mind it is no such thing the effect is on the body too so just as you say, I mean, this is your quote that you've put in your book um, from Florence Nightingale. Um, yeah, completely. I mean, that was way back then. Yeah, yeah. And the mind and the mind and the body are, are separate entities anyway. So, you know, if something does improve your spirits and your well-being and, and your morale, then then uh, that has a direct effect on your immune system. So, you know, it's an absolute no brainer, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I suppose really sort of final question from me. If you could paint the world with a magic biophilic design brush, what would it look like? Oh my gosh. <laughs> don't, give, don't give me such power. I, I'll need a cat my, I need a cat on my lap and start kind of, you know, <laughs> thinking my evil plans. Oh my goodness. Um, that fundamentally, I think I would really try and um, encourage city centre authorities to, to include more greenery in 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 urban spaces you know i'm just thinking about actually we live i mean we live in the countryside and the nearest town to us is a a town called Moulton and it's lovely it's a real kind of like old-fashioned um gorgeous market town and they've just built a big housing estate on the end on the end because rural housing is a real issue and and i'm really pleased that they've 
that they've built affordable housing um, on the side of the of the town, and um, because it'll make a big difference. But the actual design of this of the of the place incorporates almost no natural greenery. And these are people who, you know, who, the people that are going to live there, live in nature, work in nature. They'll be farmers. They'll be farm. Well, they won't be the farmers, but they'll work in farming industry or agriculture or all the associated associated industries oh. and, and businesses that you know support a, a rural community. Yeah. And yet, the, the architects that have designed this community haven't taken it into account at all. Um, and you just think, oh my god, you know, come on. I mean, it's probably a co it's probably something to do with cost because these things usually are. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I just kind of think, you know, it makes me want to just kind of bash my head against the brick wall because you just think, you know, living walls and, and, and outside spaces and shared spaces and gardens and, yeah. you know, tree-lined avenues and all these things are just so important for kind of community spaces. Yeah. Um, but we're not doing it. We're not, we're not doing it. Maybe no one wants to pay for it, uh, you know, and, 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 and people just want to build things cheaply, but it just seems a shame, doesn't it, really? Yeah. So that's a bit of a negative answer to your painting, uh, painting the world with a biophilic brush. I, I, you know, I, I feel a bit worried, really, about the long-term kind of future of, of, of things, because, and, and, and I worry about things for the kids um, in terms of kind of ecological stuff. But I also am quite optimistic about the human race and that I, I, ha I have to be, otherwise, you know, what's the point? Mm. And, and I wouldn't write books if I didn't think people weren't interested and wouldn't listen. Mm. So you know moving forward i think we'll find out i think we'll muddle our way through and I, and i think the future could be quite exciting if people kind of really embrace and love nature and cherish it thank you for listening to the journal of biophilic design podcast <laughs>